go ahead and open up with a word of prayer before we dive into God's Word. Father, we thank you for the words of that song. We do not have any merit or there's anything about us that would make us attractive to you. Um, Our sin is great and it is against you and your holiness. But the reason why we can celebrate and sing to you this morning is because of your faithfulness and your mercy, which is greater than all of our sin. We thank you that You have saved us through your Son, and that we're not just neutral towards you, but that you delight in us now because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. We are floored, humbled, and amazed at the grace we have been shown. And so I pray that as we meditate on your word, as we sit underneath it, that you would stir our affections for you and that that would continue to spill over the rest of today, throughout the next, this week, and on and on, as we seek to glorify you for what you have done and who you are. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue worshiping our Lord through studying His Word together. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And as you're doing that, I have a little word association game that I like to play. And so I'm going to say a word, and I want you to think of the first thing that pops in your head when you hear this word. So what is the first thing you think of when you hear the word worship? For some of you, the word might pop in your head is music. For some of you, it might be Sunday, as in Sunday morning, that's when we come together and worship the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that if that's the first thing that pops in your head. So don't feel guilty. But if that's the only thing you can think of when you think about worship, then we do have a little bit of a problem. If you think worship only happens on Sundays or that it only occurs via the medium or vehicle of music, then you're missing out on the full picture of what God has for us when it comes to worship. Think about 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. From the most mundane tasks of eating and drinking to the most significant things you do in your life should be done worshipfully. Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he said that because we worship what we love. And Jesus is saying you need to love the Lord and your worship should be a whole person response. All of you, a whole re- person response to the revelation of God. It involves all of your faculties your whole body, your soul, your mind. Worship is not just something that happens on Sunday either. It's a 24-7, 365 days a year event. And it's not just done through music, but through everything we think, everything we say, and everything we do. Worship's not something we only do when we're happy and when life is good. We worship when life is good, but we're also worship when life is bad. 
when the seas of life are smooth and we're going through easy sailing, we certainly worship God, but we also do it when we're going through the storms of suffering. We worship when a child is born and when there's new life. But we also should worship when someone dies. We worship when we feel good. We should also do it when we feel bad. Our worship should not cease because of our circumstances. Because we worship the Lord who is glorious and unchanging in the midst of our circumstances. It's not something we compartmentalize and relegate to one place or time or part of our life. You cannot say, well, I am devoted to my career, but after work is done, God has everything else in my life. You cannot say, well, I get to choose what I do with my free time. I'll play any video game I want, watch any movie I want, Netflix, listen to anything I want to on the music. But other than that, God can, God can tell me how I worship Him with my choices. It doesn't matter whether it's sports, hobbies, a relationship, anything else. We, can't not, we cannot have areas in our lives that are used for worshiping ourselves and at the same time claiming to be worshipers of God. It's all or nothing because that's what God is worthy of. When we certainly cannot live in unrepentant sin and at the same time claim to worship God because that kind of worship is offensive to Him. Yet even though we, most of us know this to be true, it, it's difficult to act on that knowledge at times. Our bodies are still tainted by indwelling sin and we're constantly tempted by the desires of our heart and the temptations of this world to worship those things. We find our devotion is divided at times and not wholly set on the Lord. But this morning, through Romans 12, I want you to be encouraged and equipped. So follow along with me as I read just verse 1 and 2. Paul wrote, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And those two verses really should act in our lives as believers as a spiritual catalyst that will help stir up the affections of your heart for God in such a way that the temptations of this world lose their allure, lose their power, and then we are then able to give ourselves wholly to the Lord. In this sense, God's mercy is like vinegar, and our hearts are like baking soda. So as we look at these two verses, we're going to see, this is the central thematic thing that I just want you to drive into your head over and over again, that little pebble to put in your shoe that'll bother you all week. But we're going to see how God's mercy compels us to worship Him. God's mercy compels us to worship. That's the main point. 
and to worship with our whole life. Look at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the very outset, Paul is signifying a new section in this letter that he wrote and sent to the church in Rome, and he's signaling the new section with the word, therefore. And anytime you're studying the Bible on your own, or you're in Bible studies, studying with other folks, and you come across the word, therefore, it's important to remember that therefore is there for a reason. Because it's super cheesy, but it'll stick in your head. Therefore is there for a reason. It's a word that points backward in the text. And so what Paul is doing is he is making, he's introducing a logical conclusion. He's making a connection based off of what he had written earlier in the letter. You could also interpret the word uh, therefore to say, in light of what I just said, or in light of everything that I have said, and then he makes a conclusion Just look backwards with me at Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Paul wrote, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That right there is what we call a doxology, a doxology. It's an eruption of praise and worship toward God. Paul is bursting at the seams after meditating on and writing about the merciful sovereignty of God in salvation, particularly to the nation of Israel but also to the Gentiles. This means that this word therefore isn't pointing back just to Romans 9 through 11, but Romans 1, 18 through 11, 36. That's a big therefore. That's pretty significant. So chapter 12 represents a huge hinge point in the letter. Paul is switching gears now and from talking about the theology of the gospel to the practical outworking of the gospel. Sometimes we talk about this, especially in biblical counseling, that Romans 1 through 11 are the indicatives of the gospel, that is, the facts about the gospel, the promises of God in the gospel. And then Romans 12 through 15 are the imperatives, the commands of the gospel. And why do we differentiate with those terms? Well, you have to have both in biblical counseling. Both have to be there for change to come about. If you just give someone imperatives, they're not going to change. If you give somebody just the indicatives of Scripture, they're not going to change. The indicatives are the means by which we go out and perform the imperatives. We need both there. So here, Paul is switching gears. We also know Paul is looking back at all this previous text when he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So Paul, by saying by the mercies of God, is pointing to the mercies of God that he just got done talking about in Romans 1, 18 through 11. And he's giving us the motivation and the means 
to enable us to live our whole lives as worship to God. He is essentially saying, in light of all the mercies that God has poured out on you, worship God with your whole life. Let me give you a quick high altitude flyover of Romans 1 through 11 to give you a taste uh, of what those mercies are, that what that tsunami of mercy looks like that just overwhelms us first. In despite our guilt and the understandable and just judgment of God against our sin, we are now justified. That means our sins are legally pardoned and removed in God's courtroom, and they have been placed upon Jesus while he was on the cross, and we are declared righteous, not just innocent, righteous, because God took the perfect life of Jesus, and he reckons it to our account. He imputes it to us so that when God looks at us, he doesn't see something neutral or innocent. He sees the righteousness of Christ. We are now, because of that, reconciled with God and have received the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is not something you just wait for upon death. Jesus says in John 5 that we have it now. It's not just a duration of life, but also a quality of life. Then if you go on in Romans, it's starting in chapter 6, he talks about the new identity that we have. We have a new identity. We are now united with Christ so that the power of sin is broken in our lives and we are now able to live in obedience. We are no longer under the demands and condemnation of the law since they have been fulfilled in Christ but we are now under grace where we have the freedom, the ability, and the desire to obey God from the heart. You move on from there, starting in Romans chapter 8, we find out we've been adopted by God where we can now cry out to him as our loving father. He has evidenced this adoption through the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us who helps us in our weakness and in our sufferings. God's mercy has been poured out on us as he faithfully brings to completion the saving work that he began by continually conforming us to the image of his Son until we are fully glorified in heaven, the glory of which is beyond all comparison to the present sufferings of this world. Paul's appeal to worship in light of the mercies of God, has huge implications. First, it implies that our worship cannot be forced, but it is a natural response to experiencing God's mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it implies that our ability to worship with our whole lives is only possible in light of the gospel. Another way to say it, as I said earlier, is that the imperatives of Scripture are only possible in light of the indicatives. So, as we meditate on the mercies of God, it motivates and empowers our worship. As I said earlier, the theme, God's mercy compels us to respond with our whole life. And like Paul At the end of Romans 11, when we meditate on the riches of the mercies that we have been shown, 
it is only logical that our whole lives will explode in worship. My theology professor in seminary would say regarding Romans 11 that Paul's circuit breakers were popping. And that's the question that I would have for you. When you are confronted by the mercies of God, do the circuits of your heart pop? If they don't, there's two explanations, two possible explanations. One, if the circuit breakers of your heart do not pop, it's because you're not a believer. You are spiritually dead. And like a physically dead person cannot respond to external stimulation, a spiritually dead person cannot respond to stimulation from the gospel. You are like someone who takes a trip to visit the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains, and you have no feeling whatsoever about the magnificent beauty that you see because you're blind and you cannot see it. But if that is you this morning, I want you to have hope in the gospel. Because if you recognize your sinfulness and the just judgment that you deserve, you recognize that you need a Savior, then today is a day that God has given you. God has sovereignly brought you to Flint Hills this morning so that you can hear the gospel. You cannot earn salvation yourself. You cannot do anything to save yourself. And you say, that doesn't sound very hopeful. That's why you need Jesus. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute to take the punishment that we deserve and to give us the righteousness that we did not deserve and that we did not earn. So if you confess your sins to Jesus... If you cry out to him and ask him for a new heart with which Jesus says you need to enter the kingdom of God, if you trust in him alone to save you because of what he did on the cross, then you will be saved. Jesus calls us to repent and to, that means to turn away from our sin and to turn to him in faith. But the other reason why your circuits might not be popping is because you are a believer but you are struggling at times with your heart being fixated on things of this world rather than on our glorious Father in heaven. The treasures and the concerns of this world sometimes choke out and cloud our vision from beholding the glory of God. This happens to all believers at times, and we have to be on alert for it. In those moments when the world is choking out the desires of and our heart's affections for the Lord, we are like someone who has traveled to the Grand Canyon or the Rocky Mountains, and we remain unaffected by the glory and beauty of those things because we refuse to get out of the car and look. We are in, you know, wrapped up in a book, or a video game, a movie, whatever it is, and we don't know why everyone's going on about this beauty and the glory of the Grand Canyon because we're stuck inside the car and refuse to get out. But if that's you, which it is all of us at times, I want you to have hope in this passage this morning. Our worship is motivated and stimulated by the indicatives of Scripture, the person and promises of God. Jesus said in John 14 and 15, If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. The indicatives must be there that produce the love that we have for Christ, and the obedience follows. Worship cannot come from a begrudging sense of paying God back or trying to remain in His favor and good graces. Worshipful living is never motivated by or, or, or stimulated by a fear of punishment or loss of reward. The motivation and empowerment comes from reflecting and meditating on the mercies of God. And so, the degree to which God's mercy penetrates your heart will manifest itself in your worship. So in light of the avalanche of God's mercies, Paul makes an appeal to all believers in verse 1 by addressing them as brothers. He's speaking specifically to believers. And though this has the full weight and authority of a command from an apostle, Paul uses a word that expresses a tender urging, the one that comes from, an, from a human helper who also struggles, and he's coming alongside to counsel fellow believers. Paul is lovingly encouraging us to act in light of the true inner desire that comes about from a regenerate heart. So Paul urges us to be compelled. He urges us to be compelled by God's mercy to worship with our entire lives by responding in two ways. And the first response is to commit your entire body to serve God. So in verse 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That word present is a very interesting term. It was used in context of Levitical priests in the Old Testament presenting an offering to be sacrificed on the altar. Paul purposely uses this word to convey that Old Testament imagery because, as 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us, in the New Covenant, all believers are part of God's royal priesthood. But since Jesus died on the cross as the once-for-all final payment for sin, we don't need to sacrifice animals anymore. We do not worship God through the sacrifice of animals. In the context of the new covenant through Christ's blood, this term, present yourselves, present your bodies, carries the idea of surrendering, yielding, or committing something up to God as an act of worship. So Paul's not contrasting the way Old Testament saints worshiped versus the way New Testament saints. I don't want you to have this dichotomy that the old way is gone, now it's the new way. He is not saying that Old Testament saints only worshiped when they offered animals as sacrifices. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, which I read earlier, that's a quotation of Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is how the Old Testament saint worshiped God, with their whole life. And now the mercies that come through Christ motivate us to continue to do that. By using the term bodies, Paul's not just referring to our physical fleshly body, but all that encompasses our being, our mind, our emotions, our will. God already has transformed and has ownership over your soul but it resides in this body that is still a beachhead of sin. 
While in our unredeemed state, our bodies are still stained by sinful thoughts and desires and can be used to carry out those evil desires. And that's why Paul talks about a war that goes on between his regenerate soul and the body of flesh in Romans chapter 7. But now even though we long to be freed, as a believer, we hate our sin and we want to be freed from this body that is stained by it. But Paul doesn't want us to think that these bodies are worthless, useless pieces of junk that we just can't wait to shed and get rid of. This is the way the Roman world thought during Paul's time because of Greek philosophy. They saw the body as strictly evil and the inner soul as the good part. We need to remember that in Genesis, when God created man, he created man with a body, physical body, and he viewed it as good. God created our bodies to be used for his glory and to carry out his will while on earth. It is with our mouth that we proclaim the gospel. It is with our eyes that we read God's word. It is with our ears that we hear God's word. It is with our hands and our feet, with our minds that we use for God's glory in serving others and helping and using our gifts. It is with our minds that we think about God. And just because our bodies are tainted by the fall and by sin, it doesn't mean God will be done with them once this life is over. Because at the resurrection, our bodies will be reunited with our souls. And then God will glorify and redeem our physical bodies. And we will continue to use them to serve the Lord in heaven and in the new heavens and the new earth forever. So sin, yes, sin can reign in your mortal body, but it does not have to. We do not have to present our bodies to be used for sinful purposes. Though they are imperfect, they're still useful. And that's why Paul commands us to commit, to present our bodies sacrificially to God in service. So how, what does that look like? How do you do that? Well, if you read Romans 12 through 15, you'll get a pretty good tsunami avalanche of what that looks like to use your body in service high fly a uh, high altitude flyover god's mercy compels us to use our spiritual gifts to serve the church that's romans 12 he compels us to use um to use those gifts to love and to serve one another it compels us to respond even supernaturally as we serve those who are our enemies even when they persecute us even when they hate us it also compels us to submit to our governing authorities. And it compels us to love our Christian family in all of its diversity by receiving one another with understanding in all of our differences that we have, our idiosyncrasies, our differences in our preferences and how we think about things. At the end of verse 1, Paul says that our worship is to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. These adjectives, they're descriptions of what makes our bodily service acceptable to God. So the idea of your body being a living sacrifice is not a contrast to animal sacrifices, because animals were alive 
when they were sacrificed. So that's what Paul's not trying to make a contrast there. The point is that you are to live in light of the new life that you have been given in Christ. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Our service is to be holy. That means set apart in, for distinct use. When you read through Leviticus, you see that so many different things were made holy in service to God, whether in the tabernacle or later in the temple. They were set apart for a singular use. That meant you could not use the shovel that was meant for scooping ashes out of the altar for any other purpose. It would have been profane to use it for digging a latrine or any other thing. You could not use the table of the showbread for eating dinner off of. To do so would have been blasphemous to God. In the same way, our bodies are meant to be used distinctly in service to God and not for our own sinful pleasures. Our worship is not acceptable to God if we are living in unrepentant sin. So we are to commit our entire bodies to God as spiritual worship. And here Paul uses actually another technical word for worship. It simply means to serve. And in the Old Testament, it was used in relation to all the other ways the Levitical priests served apart from offering sacrifices. Everything else they did would have fallen under this word. And it's actually a word that God uses in direction to all of Israel in Deuteronomy 10:12. God expects this from everyone. And while our service should certainly be spiritual, the Greek word used here is actually where we get our English word logic or logical. That's why I do prefer some other translations other than the ESV that I'm reading out of, which use the word like reasonable. In light of God's mercy, it is logical. It is reasonable that we give of our whole life to him in worship. It's actually illogical for a believer not to respond that way, to compartmentalize their life. One author put it this way, Christians who offer a living sacrifice of themselves usually do not consider it to be a sacrifice. And it is not a sacrifice in the common sense of losing something valuable. The only things we entirely give up for God to be removed and destroyed are sin and sinful things, which only bring us injury and death. But when we offer God the living sacrifice of ourselves, He does not destroy what we give Him, but refines it and purifies it, not only for His glory, but for our present and eternal good. That is the mercy of our great and almighty, powerful God, that He takes our worship and uses it for our own good and for His glory at the same time. Our ability to commit our entire bodies to service and to serve God is also dependent, though, upon our mind. Our bodies don't do anything apart from our minds willing and deciding to do something. The mind is where our new spiritual nature and our old human nature are intermixed. And that's why the second response of whole life worship is that we commit our entire mind to God 
So in verse 2, Paul wrote, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What this verse implies with a negative and a positive command is that you are always under some pressure from an external force to be conformed, to be molded, to be molded to act in a certain way. Whether we are aware of it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, it's happening. Both the negative and the positive command do not be conformed, but be transformed. They're passive. They're passive in the verbiage, which means that it's something that's done to you. You do not do it yourself. We allow it to happen to us. And Paul uses this term world. Do not be conformed, conformed by the world. And, that, and the word there is better rendered age. It refers to the present sinful age that we live in that's ruled by Satan. The world and Satan are always trying to influence or squeeze us into a mold so that we will act outwardly in a way that does not match with the inward reality that God has brought about in our hearts. But yet the mercy of God compels us to not be passively shaped that way by the world, to not be shaped in such a way that affects our actions, our thoughts, and our speech to look like the rest of the world. For example, this passive molding. If you were just to watch news, and I don't care which station it is, if you just watch the news all the time, or more than you take in God's Word, you will see a reflection of that in your speech, your actions, and your thoughts. You will find yourself conformed to a pattern of anxiety and fear. If you watch movies or play video games or listen to music with lots of foul language or sexually inappropriate material, you will find yourselves being molded passively to speak, to think, and act similarly. If you spend more time in the company of unbelievers than you do with believers, you will find yourself to be molded like them. But instead of that, we are to be passively transformed when the Holy Spirit renews our mind. This Greek term, transform, is the same word. It's where we get our word in the English, metamorphosis, right? like caterpillar turning into a butterfly. It was used in the Gospels to describe Jesus' transfiguration when his face shone like the sun and his garments became white. Just as Jesus was outwardly changed to reflect who he really was, we too are to be transformed in such a way that we reflect the reality of our regenerate hearts. And the way this transformation happens is through the renewing of the mind. Outward transformation comes about by inner change. That's worth repeating and memorizing. Outward transformation comes about by inner change. This renewing is brought about by the Holy Spirit as our minds are continually saturated in the Word of God. 
We see that in so many commands. You can look at Ephesians 5.18 and Colossians 3.17, which tells us to allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly. And from that spring forth the Holy Spirit leading us in our lives in worship of God. As our minds are continually renewed, it results in a positive experience of knowing what the will of God is in our lives, and it conforms our will to His. This, then, will make our decisions in life reflect God's glory. A transformed mind results in transformed living, and this kind of living is always good and acceptable and perfect to God. And this implies that the amount of time we spend saturating ourselves in God's Word, reflecting on it, meditating on it, and especially on the mercies of God, the amount of time we spend doing that will be reflected in our, in our thoughts and our actions. Though we are passive in the transformation process, we have to be active in putting ourselves in a position to be transformed. If you are wrestling and struggling with a sin, you cannot just pray, God, please make this desire and zap it and make it go away. God gives us his word and the spirit works through the word. When we worship with our whole life, with our bodies and our minds, it will be evident. You will know that you're doing it both in a horizontal response and a vertical response. Vertical response means in your relationship with God. Horizontal means in your relationship with others. So let me give you an example. As we put off sin, we are worshiping. And that's always interesting. We don't always think about that. We don't always think about killing sin in our lives, crucifying the desires of our flesh as worship. But it is. And we respond vertically by repenting of the sin. That's the turning away from it and turning to Christ in faith because of godly sorrow over the sin, because of our fear of the Lord, because of our love for Him. And so we respond in a vertical relationship with Him. We also respond vertically by depending upon God for the strength to obey and out of a desire to glorify Him. When we pray, we are, we are Oh, let me back up before we pray. Sorry, I forgot the horizontal response. The horizontal response of killing sin is evident when our minds are renewed in the scriptures. We put on righteousness in its place and we seek reconciliation with others when needed. When we pray, that's another example. We are worshiping uh, vertically in our response by expressing a heart of dependence, humility, adoration, confession, and thanksgiving toward God. We respond horizontally when we pray for our ourselves and when we intercede for our brothers and sisters, when we pray for our enemies as Jesus commanded us to, and by praying for those in authority. We worship God with our entire life, with our bodies and our minds, because it is the only reasonable response to the avalanche of God's mercy in our life. It compels us. The grace of God compels true believers to respond that way. But it's also only possible by the mercies of God to do that. So we need to respond to this passage by being humbly dependent upon God's mercy to obey this command. Our bodies and our minds are always continually under assault 
and are always influenced by some external force to worship something other than God. We are creatures created to worship. It is our natural impulse to worship. But God is so much more glorious and infinite and wonderful that when we behold him in his glory, it makes the things of this world lose their power. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, As we behold the glory of God, we are transformed from one degree to another. But we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot do it by sheer willpower. We are so dependent upon Christ to do this. But we must be prepared to place ourselves in a position where we are meditating on the mercies of God so that our hearts are compelled. That spiritual catalyst propels us to worship Him with our whole lives and be prepared to jettison, throw everything overboard that would hinder our lives from worshiping the Lord. We are not completely passive in this. There's a balance act that must be done as Christians. We must be placing ourselves in a position where God will transform our hearts. There's a tension there at times. It's kind of seen in like Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, work outward the salvation that has been done in your heart with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Like, which is it, Paul? Is it God working in me to will and to do, or do I need to do it? Yes. Yes. God has given us the means of grace. He's given us the tools, all things pertaining to life and godliness, everything we need that is profitable to equip us and train us to do every work of righteousness that he has prepared before time for us to carry out and do. So we need to lay hold of those and use them, knowing that he's worth it, and as a natural response to the revelation of God, because we have been inundated and blessed with such mercy in light of our sin. And it's such a joy and a privilege to be able to worship God and give of our whole life for his glory and his honor. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the overwhelming amount of mercy you have shown us in spite of our sinfulness. You have, while we were your enemies, while we were hostile towards you, you sent your son to die on the cross and grace, by grace we are saved through faith, not of our own works, so that we have no reason to boast except in Christ alone. We thank you that you have shown us so much mercy before the foundations of the world, that you have shown us so much mercy right in this moment of time, and that you continue to show us mercy for eternity future. We marvel and are amazed at how much you have shown your love and I pray that you would stir the affections of all of our hearts here this morning to sacrifice anything and everything for your glory so that you might be honored in this world and that we might delight in you now and for all eternity. I pray that you would give us the motivation 
and the strength and the power to do so, that we would be dependent upon you and that you would help continue to transform us while we behold your glory. Amen.